Hello! Welcome to Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios, here with Emily Peck of Axios. Hello, hello. Here with Elizabeth Spires of New York Times and elsewhere. Hello. Elizabeth Spires has recently done the Barbie Heimer thing. She saw both movies on one day. She's going to tell us about that in the numbers round. But before we get to the numbers round, we have a full, awesome, brilliant show. We're going to talk about the UPS strike, which was averted, the deal that was done between UPS and its workers. We are going to talk about Goldman Sachs and its misadventures in consumer finance. That's a fun one. We are going to talk about college admissions and why they seem to favor the 1%. It's all coming up on Slate Money. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Emily, are we going to be getting all of our UPS packages? We don't need to worry about a UPS strike. Yes, Felix. Thank goodness, because I have some sports bras coming today via UPS, <laughs> and uh, luckily, no disruptions to the service. <laughs> you are, you know, the queen of the labor beat around these parts, and I'm just going to come out and say that you think that the fact there isn't a UPS strike is much more important in terms of labor relations than it is on deliveries of sports bras. Would I be right <laughs> about that? Yes, yes. I wasn't concerned about the deliveries, really. And um, I'm really debating whether I should tell Patrick to cut that part out. Don't, but. no, no. We, because, like, this is why people care about UPS and UPS strikes, right? Is that this is a one of those big companies that really touches consumers on a regular basis. And yeah. people know their UPS guy and people recognize the UPS trucks. And it's a very visible company, unlike, you know, I don't know, some pharma company that no one ever sees, but it's worth three times as much. So it it's something that when there's a fear that UPS workers might go on strike, people are like, I know exactly how that would affect me. Yes, exactly. So to back up this week, the UP UPS and its union that represents about 340,000 workers, they hammered out a tentative agreement and the union rank and file still needs to vote on it. And actually the last time they voted on a contract, they did vote it down. Although I don't, I don't think this will happen in this case, um, but it is a possibility. That's an enormous number. That's 340,000 employees of UPS who are in the union. Yeah, it's the largest labor contract, largest union contract in North America. It, it's massive. It's almost twice what the auto workers, they're going to negotiate a contract later this summer, early fall. And it's about twice the amount of auto workers. Yeah, it's a huge union. It's been around a very long time. So on one level, this is just so much bigger than anyone else that it, it's just like deeply important on its own you know, on its own merits. But does that mm -hmm. also mean that it's hard to extrapolate from it because it's so sort of sweet, generous? Yeah, I, I was thinking about this a lot. So, I mean, all year, the past two years, there's been a lot of talk about unions made a comeback and labor's more popular now and people point to Starbucks workers or Amazon warehouse workers. 
Um, and they say, you know, this is labor's, you know, resurgence. And then you see this UPS deal, and this is a good deal for these workers. They got, it seems like they got everything they wanted, big pay increases. They got rid of this like two-tier um, worker classification system that everyone, well, all the workers anyway, really hated. Uh, they got air conditioning in the trucks. Like they got everything, it feels like. Um, though listeners can write in and tell me what I missed. But so you would think, oh, this means labor is newly powerful. Um, this union was able to get things they haven't gotten before. So I don't think that's true. I think that UPS had, um, was uniquely vulnerable to a strike in this case. Like any kind of work stoppage would have put pushed UPS customers over to like FedEx and other shipping alternatives. And a lot of times those contracts don't come back. Plus UPS has a history of dealing if not nicely with its union, but like at least engaging with it in a way that Starbucks say, or Amazon, they're not anywhere near that level. Like Starbucks and Amazon are still basically doing everything they can to prevent even getting a single contract for those unions. Like, and, and it's unclear to me if that'll ever happen for those companies. And meanwhile, the country as a whole is union membership overall is, is declining. So I don't know what we can extrapolate about labor from from this win for UPS. Yeah, the way I see it is that there's a lot of old school, you know, auto manufacturers in the north and you know, I guess like in my mind the, the classic unions would be like coal miners. The big unionized industries are just not as big as they used to be and so as they've declined the new industries have not kept pace in terms of unionization, right? The Workers at the Magnificent Seven, the the companies that are taking over the world, you know, um, Google, Microsoft, Nvidia, and the like, they're basically not unionized. And right. Amazon, they might they might be trying in like a tiny little bit pocket here or there, but it's basically not happening. Right. So we're not seeing the new economy unionized to remotely the degree that the old economy was unionized, and the old economy, you know, just by history is is slowly disappearing. UPS is the big exception to this rule because it happens to have been this sort of surprise beneficiary of the new economy. Everyone is ordering things online and needs things d delivered to their home. And that's how UPS has almost uniquely among old economy companies managed to do incredibly well. One thing that's sort of interesting that I've been kind of mulling over is um UPS's sort of pricing power. I was talking to an analyst. So UPS handles, I think, like about a quarter of all the, the shipments in the US or something like that. So it's massive. And its biggest competitor is FedEx and the post office. But someone was telling me when UPS raises pay and then raises prices as a result, as it's probably going to do because of this contract, FedEx follows and raises prices. It's a cartel. It's a it's a monopoly. Yeah, they so, all just rise. Like, it, in fact, UPS doesn't mind giving all of these pay rises because it gets happier workers, that it gets better retention, and it retains market share because everyone else is just going to raise prices in lockstep. I'm sure you know Louis DeJoy or whatever his name is at the post office would be happy to keep on raising prices. Yeah, I mean, this is one one analyst who told me it, and it seems crazy to me that the smaller like upstart shippers don't try and undercut UPS on price, but maybe people don't trust them as much. And maybe very long term, UPS starts losing market share. But for now, it can do this right, exactly, because it has such a, a stranglehold. And I feel like shipping in particular is something where 
there's just absolutely enormous barriers to entry, right? You can't be a small upstart shipper. You need to have massive nationwide logistics networks in order to be able to get the kind of economies of scale that UPS or FedEx or the post office have. Yeah, there's also the fact that UPS and FedEx are so heavily intertwined with the operations of the U.S. postal system, where last mile delivery is not always uh, handled by the original shipper. So if you're a smaller shipping company, you know, you, you also have to replicate those networks and figure out how to be in places where you just don't have the infrastructure. Elizabeth, do you think that this deal is an anomaly? Do you think that there is a labor resurgence? Uh, no, what I think is happening is that we're seeing unionization happen in industries that haven't had it before, per Felix's point, and that's what's making it seem more visible. I think <laughs> there's a lot more media coverage because the dynamics of a labor fight at Amazon are not necessarily like the labor fights that we've seen you know, mm -hmm. in, in prior generations. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, the big fights these days are really companies that, like the workers who want to unionize versus companies who don't want them to unionize, rather than the historical labor fights, which was unionized workers fighting with employers about the terms of the contract. Well, also, this, this particular contract is super important because if it didn't get, if there were, if there was a strike, the economic consequences would be huge, not just for UPS's, you know, direct customers, it would disrupt the supply chain again, we'd probably see inflation from it. So, you know, some of the other union fights of Starbucks strikes for 10 days, <laughs> you know, not, not nearly the same consequences. That is true. So... Emily, I, I can remember not very long ago, there was a threatened railroad strike where Joe Biden actually stepped in to prevent the strike because the railroads were so crucial to the functioning of the economy. Um, was there behind the scenes pressure from the White House here as well? Now, this is different. So with the with the railroads, there's a federal law governing uh, rail unions and air unions, airline unions, um, that allows the federal government to step in. They can't just go on strike. The federal government can step in and work on negotiations like directly with them, right? But not with UPS. Not with UPS. And I mean, the, the business groups asked the Biden administration to get involved, but the head of the Teamsters Union, like specifically... Sean O'Brien said, Please, you know, don't get involved with this. Like, we want to do this on our own. So the White House was, like, talking to the parties, but really wasn't directly involved in negotiations or anything like that. My last question is about FedEx. Is this big victory for UPS workers going to embolden FedEx workers to unionize? Is that on the table or remotely possible? I haven't seen anything about FedEx workers unionizing. The FedEx pilots are unionized, and they actually just voted down um, a new contract. But related to your last question, these guys can't just immediately go on strike because of the federal labor, labor law. I, I don't know what it's going to mean for the FedEx uh, delivery workers. Maybe they'll just try to get jobs at UPS because they're they said as part of this contract they would hire more full-timers. Does the fact that UPS jobs are unionized mean that they're broadly better than FedEx jobs? I mean, I guess I have the same question about, you know, auto workers. Do auto workers for Ford have better jobs than auto workers for Toyota because they're unionized? Well, I mean, I haven't spoken to any FedEx workers, but we know broadly from data that unionized workers make more money. <laughs> so 
I think probably you could say that it's better to be a unionized worker. There's a lot of rhetoric coming from anti-union groups that try to argue you have less freedom as a unionized worker, the pay bans, and you don't, you know, you have to move in lockstep with, you know, your coworkers. But that's not really true. That's kind of to the discretion of different employers. And yeah, we know that unionized workers make more money and typically have better benefits. So I'd say like, broadly speaking, it's better to be in a union. I know a lot of anti-union or conservative types would disagree. If Anna was still here, she would fight me on this. (laughs) (laughs) Anna, come back. Um, So let's have a quick break and then talk about the Apple Card. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and... 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Hello, I'm Imi Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people camped here, ransacked my computer. And I I got people threatening me. I got this and that, but I'm safe. And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's Rebel Billionaire on the Slow Newscast, wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so my friend... Former colleague Lauren LaCapra had a massive piece in the information this week about the way that the Apple card just kind of broke the relations between Goldman Sachs and Apple. Goldman Sachs and Apple are two of these uh, iconic sort of number ones in their respective fields, and they teamed up together to create a groundbreaking new type of credit card that would revolutionize credit cards and be super different and much better on a whole bunch of different levels. And everyone was incredibly optimistic about it. And Apple thought they would issue 10 million of these cards in the first year. And then it just kind of flopped to the degree that Goldman Sachs is reported to have lost over a billion dollars on this thing and wants out of the whole deal. And it just seems to be a kind of a lot of egg on the face of Goldman Sachs, if not on the face of Apple. Elizabeth, what's your what's your sort of general take on this thing? Yeah, I mean, I think this is a result of both companies not understanding each other's competencies and agreeing to things that they wouldn't normally. So Goldman uh, was willing to forego a lot of the fees that you would normally get on credit card transactions. Um, Apple went into the business thinking that the card would just be a way to get people to upgrade their phones more frequently or to buy Apple products. And the consumer market for this kind of credit card is uh, very different than, for example, the the market for high-end designy things that Apple sells. So there are hiccups that I think are probably intuitive to anybody who uses a credit card. You know, a small one was just that there's no number on the card. You have to go to your phone to find the number and think about it how many times a week you probably pull out your credit card to just, you know, remember what the number is to key it in somewhere. Uh, and that's just a function of Apple not really 
understanding consumer credit markets. So, yeah, I, I feel like on some level, Apple really did understand uh, the credit card market. How so? They really did create a superior product. The fact that it doesn't have an annual fee, the fact that it encourages you to pay more rather than less when you pay your credit card bill, um, the customer service, you know, response times and, you know, telephone lines are really quite good by credit card standards. And what they did was they built the kind of credit card that all of the fintechs would like dream of building if they had those kind of resources because you know they managed to negotiate with mastercard to get this incredibly high interchange fee even though it was free and it didn't really deserve it so that was a great way for them to get sort of free money from mastercard and ultimately from merchants and the the product itself is a very sleek um very innovative consumer-friendly product. Like, it's actually good for consumers, and it's designed by Apple mostly, you're absolutely right, to sell Apple hardware, right? They realized that, you know, rich people can just pay $1,000 on a new computer and it'll just come out of their checking account or whatever. A lot of, most of us probably can't and would need to pay that off over time. And with the Apple Card, it becomes a lot easier and a lot cheaper to do that and a lot more convenient to do that. And you get lots of extra cash back and stuff. And so it's a way of making phones and headphones and computers more accessible to a broader population. Like in terms of financial services, the big Apple product is very, very much Apple Pay, not the Apple Card. And the Apple Card was like a fun way to, you know, sell more um, gadgets. But for Goldman, it was a very... They didn't really see it that way. Goldman wasn't interested in Apple selling more gadgets. Goldman wanted to be like a major force in consumer finance. And they wound up saying like, teaming up with Apple, the amazing Apple would be a great way of doing this. And it turns out, they turned out, you know, what they wound up doing was allowing a bunch of not rich people to buy phones and then a bunch of those not rich people wound up defaulting on those loans and causing Goldman credit losses. I, I guess maybe my characterization of not understanding competency is, is, you know, maybe it's less that than just misaligned incentives. Is everything that Goldman agreed to is, is you know, antithetical to what you would need to build a successful consumer banking product? I was thinking something similar, like maybe a typical credit card isn't totally that. A typical successful credit card business isn't all that consumer friendly. That <laughs> you get charged a lot of fees for being late. You get charged an annual fee. Um, there are interchange fees that maybe drive up the price of things. I don't know. The clear message from Lawrence Peace is that if you are a credit card company, you would never do this deal with Apple. Exactly. The the credit card companies have very profitable companies, and they know how to make money, and they make money by charging fees. Apple comes along and says, I want a credit card without any fees, and the credit card companies just kind of scoff and say, ha-ha, you're joking, right? And Apple's like, no, we're not joking. And then Goldman comes along wanting to be like the disruptor in the field, and they're like, we'll do it, and we have a 10-year time horizon, and we will you know, invest in this for the long term, and we, we want to build up a consumer franchise, and this is a great way to build up a consumer franchise. And then you know, the, the consumer business winds up losing a lot more money than they thought it would. Um, it 
becomes very unpopular internally within Goldman Sachs. There's a lot of executive turnover at the top of the consumer business. And eventually, Goldman Sachs basically decides that it wants to get out of that business altogether. And and now they're stuck with the credit card. They would love to hand it over to American Express or someone else. But Apple has absolutely no incentive to allow them to do that. And they also have a deal with MasterCard until 2026, I think. So this couldn't happen immediately anyway. Well, it could happen with anyone who is connected to MasterCard. It couldn't happen with American Express because American Express isn't a MasterCard. But also, one of the great things about Apple is that it's a MasterCard, not an American Express, right? Which means that you can use it basically anywhere in the world rather than just in the United States. So Apple would be giving up a lot if they moved over to American Express because the number of merchants who accept it globally would plunge. Well, another thing that's kind of baffling about the whole situation is that I think Apple made it clear from the beginning that they were going to be very liberal in terms of allowing people to get the card uh, because there was some fear internally, I guess, that if they rejected people, it would somehow hurt Apple's brand. But Goldman typically has such a high-end business. If they were doing a consumer card on their own, I would imagine that their credit conditions would be uh, much stricter than what Apple actually put out, which is almost in in a category of uh, not subprime lending, but something maybe like a a step above that. And one of the complaints about the the business so far is that, you know, you have people defaulting on payments because they probably shouldn't have been issued the cards in the first place. So Apple's getting the kind of blowback that they were worried about anyway, sometimes from the card. I haven't seen that. I haven't seen people blaming Apple for extending credit to people who didn't deserve it. Um, Maybe a little bit Goldman. The way the underwriting worked, I thought was actually very clever, um, is that Apple and Goldman tried very hard to give some kind of credit limit to almost everyone who applied. And if you had terribly bad credit, then they would give you like a very small, I don't know, $250 credit limit or something, but they wouldn't say no. Um, And and the underwriting was basically not a yes or no decision so much as it was a how much credit are we going to give you decision. That did wind up blowing back in their face when DHH, this, you know, techie guy, revealed that his credit limit was so much higher than his wife's, despite the fact that she had a higher credit score. Um, But that was ultimately a little bit of a blip, I think. Um, you are right that Apple is very, 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 very concerned about its reputation, and it knows that credit cards have a bad reputation. There are very few people who like really love the financial services industry, and so it was very worried. That's one of the reasons why I wanted no fees, why I wanted everyone to be accepted, and all of these kind of things, because it wanted to preserve its reputation as best it could, um, and so that was definitely one of the, the sources of tension. This is just embarrassing for Goldman, I think. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they just look not, they don't look smart in this. They made a deal that maybe no other credit card uh, pers- business would make, and it's not working out for them. And it's not clear to me why Goldman needed Apple Apple's name, you know? Like they could, Goldman could have had its own credit card and people would have taken, used that credit card. I don't, I don't think they needed the, the power of Apple's brand name here at all. Yeah, I'm not sure about that. To Elizabeth's point, if the main branding on the credit card was Goldman Sachs rather than Apple, then it would have wound up being a sort of a card for the 
top 5%. You know, it would have wound up being a card for the kind of people who have a Marcus savings account. Um, and the whole reason why Goldman moved into consumer banking in the first place was not because they wanted to provide checking accounts to rich people. It was because they wanted a whole separate consumer-facing business for, you know, that they could disrupt the big banks by having, you know, a virtual bank without all of the necessary without all of the investment in in branches and that kind of stuff and they thought that as Goldman Sachs with the ability to invest billions of dollars in this stuff they had a, a an advantage over the neo banks like you know Chime or Dave or Viro or Aspiration or you know Square for that matter just from a marketing perspective I think they really messed up. <laughs> if they if they wanted to get into consumer banking, they could have taken a lesson from Apple, right? Apple is also sort of like this high-end brand, you know, and it started off very it's not aspirational, but it's very expensive and they don't mess with their price points and slowly over time everyone wants an Apple product and it sort of becomes mass. I feel like Goldman could have leveraged its brand, which is extremely well-known. Everyone knows what Goldman Sachs is. They could have started out as a card for more wealthy people, like you said, Felix, and could have like done a really specific targeted marketing campaign where the Goldman card would almost be like Amex, you know, platinum or gold or whatever Amex is now. I don't know what level of metal is it's at at this point where it become more aspirational and you could see it then becoming bigger because more people would actually want to have a Goldman account. But instead, they like created a new name. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm switching a little from Apple Card now to Marcus, which is their consumer banking brand. But they, can, they created a whole new name, a whole new brand. And I, I just, I think from the start, this was sort of like all bad. <laughs> this, is, this is one of my favorite episodes in the early negotiations between Goldman and Apple. Goldman very much wanted the Marcus name on the card. Mm -hmm. And Apple was like, who the fuck is Marcus? We exactly. want Goldman Sachs on the card. And eventually the name was Goldman Sachs and not Marcus. And Apple uh, and Goldman never really forgave them for that, I don't think. But, it, I, the, but Apple was right. I mean, if you have a good brand, and this is like basically a podcast subtweet to Elon Musk. If you have a good, strong brand and everyone knows what it means and recognizes it, you lean into the brand and you could like, broaden and out, widen, create mass appeal for the brand in other ways, but you don't you don't need to create a whole new trademark and brand. That I think that's typically a mistake. And and Goldman was just really bad at building this brand, right? They yeah. spent hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars, trying to create a checking account. You know, there are literally <laughs> thousands of banks in America that have checking accounts. Checking accounts are not rocket science. But after this insane amount of investment in just building a checking account, an online checking account, something that has existed for, you know, 20 years, they never managed to actually roll it out and, and launch it because even after all of that investment, they weren't capable of doing it. That is amazing. Yeah. And now the, the Goldman CEO seems to be in real trouble in terms of his future. Not his DJing future, but his future as CEO of, of Goldman. His 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 future as a DJ ropes. is assured. I'm sure like he can he can always yeah. just quit and become a full time DJ. Wait, Felix, before you move on, yeah. I have a question for you related to credit cards. Sure. I read in your newsletter that you don't cash in your credit card points. Oh my God, I'm so bad about that. I have what? this massive pile of Amex points that is just sitting there. But what? 
can't, why? You, it's not hard. Do, I don't, can't, don't you get cash back or, um, and you travel all the time. Like you're, I feel like you're leaving a lot of money on the table. I, I am. I'm very disturbed by this. I am. You're right. Um, so I, yeah. So this is a personal failing of mine, which I'm willing to admit to <laughs> on the podcast among friends. Um, first of all, I have this Amex thing, right? So like, if I had cash back, it would be great. It would just be Im- invisible and it, it would give me cash and that would be fine. But I don't have a cash back card. I have an Amex uh... card. So Amex just gives me these points, right? And everyone basically tells me, well, once you have the points, you should be able to redeem them at, at a value of one cent each. And I'm like, hmm, okay. And every so often, you know, I will find like a fun linen suit at Banana Republic that there's a way I can spend my Amex points on buying the linen suit and I can redeem the points at one cent each. But the vast majority of the time, I can't. And in terms of the travel, like there's this whole ecosystem of people like, you know, who are incredibly adept at optimizing their point spending Mm -hmm. and they wind up joining all of these obscure well, not obscure, but like foreign mileage programs on, you know, Air France or Singapore Airlines or, you know, whichever one has the best deal and buying tickets on that. And I just, I just don't have the bandwidth. I just don't have the, I just find it really, I, I, I look at the amount of effort involved in trying to sort of arbitrage that kind of thing. I'm like, it's just not worth it. So why do you have an Amex? Switch cards and do a cashback card. I should I should just have the cashback card. It's true, but <laughs> it's you know, a, it's, they do have they do have very good like basic <laughs> customer protections and like car insurance and you know the the broad product X points is a really good product, okay. but the all of that extra you know pointy value that. They promise you. I'm like, great. I have all of these points. I what I should do is just stop being um, weird about the one cent per point thing and just be like, oh, you know, I can book travel at zero point six cents per point. That's fine. It's better than nothing. Yeah. Okay. Well, I hope you change your ways. Thank you for <laughs> answering my question. <laughs> but yes, if any of you guys listening to this, my favorite podcast listeners in the world have any advice for me on what is an efficient way to spend a large number of Amex points and try and get like somewhere approaching one cent per point in value, that would be amazing. Otherwise, or if you just want to say like, stop it, give up, just, you know, use it to, I I got, I got one reply from a woman who was like, do you realize you can use those points to actually pay your Amex bill? I was like, what? What? For like (laughs) 0.6 cents or something, you can actually use the points in partial payment of your bill. But uh, you really have no excuse then. I have no excuse. I didn't even know that. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, 
giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. We should talk about the 1% and the Ivy League and elite education because a couple of interesting things happened this week. The first one is that... uh, Research paper came out saying that the one percent were way more likely to get into the elite universities than the upper middle classes, and the second one was that the Biden administration came out and said something, something civil rights act, something we are thinking about basically making legacy admissions illegal. Um, Elizabeth, you understand the connection between these two things. Yeah, but just to talk about the first thing a little bit. So the the findings of this paper, which was put out by a a couple of guys at Harvard and a guy from Brown, what really studied the admissions process and admission rates at the Ivy Leagues and then four other schools, Stanford, Duke, MIT, and University of Chicago. And what they found was that even when you control for things like SAT scores, the one percenters are overrepresented at you know, an incredibly high rate, and largely because they score well on non-academic qualities. So this, this can be things like uh, the way their recommendation letters are rated or things that are already on their resume that are not necessarily academic, you know, extracurricular activities, stuff like that. And to me, that seems like a very intuitive finding. Yeah, I don't think anyone was surprised by this, were they? I mean, Emily, were you? Um. The surprise to me was in the test scores part, because when when the test scores, I thought, advantaged the wealthy. That's what I sort of thought by reading a lot of articles on this over the years and books. Um, You know, wealthier kids, kids of the rich do better on the test scores. But it turns out that test scores are kind of the most fair <laughs> um, part of the admissions process for these elite schools. Um, and then the the what gives those elite kids the advantage aren't test scores, but, you know, what Elizabeth said, what David Leonhardt is calling private school padding or something. You know, if you go to a private school, you just have better extracurriculars. You have better letters of recommendation. Yeah, that there's also the whole athletic thing that, you know, if, oh, yes. the, if the lacrosse coach wants to recruit you for the lacrosse team, guess what? You're probably going to be a member of the 1% because there's not a lot of like working class lacrosse players out there. There's not that, but that also the sports piece surprised me too. Cause I knew like the lacrosse part or maybe the tennis part, but it turns out Skiing. almost all sports, um, high school sports advantage, the very, the very rich, not, you know, like soccer even advantages the very rich in terms of getting, gaining admission to these schools. So, um, that kind of surprised me also. One of the interesting stats in this study was that 5% of applicants to Ivy League schools are athletes, legacies, and donor kids but they represent close to 30% of admits. Yeah, why, why does it matter? It matters because these institutions are overrepresented in, in positions of leadership too. Something like 12% of Fortune 500 executives graduated from the Ivies and Ivy Plus school. So the difference it makes is how, you know, the, the elite class of people gets formed in America is heavily determined by things like education, especially 
for students who come from lower income backgrounds or first generation college students. Um, they're just exponentially more likely to end up in those positions of leadership if they go to an elite school. So it, it changes the shape of what elites in the U.S. look like. Right. And and this is this is part of the much, much bigger question of why class mobility in the United States is so incredibly low. Why is it that the, you know, moving, like if you're born into a certain class in the United States, you're overwhelmingly likely to stay in that class. You're not likely to move up or move down. Um, if you're born into the elite, you're going to remain in the elite. If you're born into the, you know, working classes, you're very much likely to stay there. Even like compared to Europe, which is, you know, like my country, the UK, which is meant to be like, has this reputation of being very class ridden, actually has way more class mobility than the United States that has this reputation of being a meritocracy. Um, and this is one of the myriad ways in which class mobility is stunted, you know, the, the moving between classes is stunted because you do have all of these built in advantages. And and one of the things I wrote about in my newsletter this week is the the thing that people aren't really talking a lot about is that the colleges themselves have such a huge financial incentive to admit these rich kids, right? Because the rich kids are so much more valuable to them. They not only put, pay full whack in terms of tuition, but they also, you know, are expected to give, you know, that amount of money many times over in, in terms of sort of net present value donations over the rest of their lives you know the if you if you admit millionaires they're going to give you more donations than if you admit people with no money yeah this is a little bit of what the biden administration's argument hinges on uh, even at private schools private schools are still the recipient of lots of federal funding and so the biden administration is arguing that in this case harvard in particular disproportionately advantages children of legacies, donors, and athletes, and those people are overwhelmingly white kids. And so the argument they're making is that this is unfairly discriminates against Black, Hispanic, and Asian applicants. I think that's, I, I don't know what the success of the, the Biden administration's endeavor would be, but I think it's an important thing to get into the conversation, to talk about how these admissions um, give a disproportionate proportionate advantage to white people. Because one thing that gets whispered that I hear, because I'm, I'm talking to people who have kids that are either applying to college or, you know, in that, in that milieu. And, or, and I've heard from people say things like, so-and-so didn't get into such and such fancy school because, you know, affirmative action. They kind of like whisper it and they know they're saying something wrong, but no one ever says, Little so little Jeffrey didn't get into, you know, Dartmouth because they take a bunch of legacy students. So he got beat out by a bunch of richer kids, you know, whose parents went there. No one ever says that. I just feel like it's good to have a conversation about this bigger picture because there's a lot of racism at play and and when people talk about admissions and it it needs to it needs to be aired out so people can understand really what who's getting the leg up, who has this unfair advantage. But yeah, but also this whole concept of fair, I feel, is is incredibly problematic. Like, I don't think there is such a thing as fair admissions. I think that, you know, if you just, as you say, like, as you said very early on in this conversation, if you just look at SAT scores, that's unfair, right? Because the rich have higher SAT scores because they can afford them, because they can have, you know, 
better education and the kids have more access to books and computers and all you know all of these reasons that we all know and better schools because you know the quality of your schooling is basically a function of the amount of property taxes that come and you know all of these all of these things right so what is fair right there is no generally agreed um metric by which you could say this is fair i think that there is one school on this list that comes close ish which is mit and they don't have legacy admissions and they really do just concentrate on academics and they're like how high are you scoring on you know metrics of cleverness and we just want the cleverest people and okay fine I'd argue Chicago is kind of the same, though. I mean, some of these other schools could easily do that if they made it a priority, and they would. No, have- they could, but I'm just saying they wouldn't want to, right? I'm I'm saying that that what we don't want is for all of these schools to replicate MIT and to become MITs. Like, it's perfectly fine to have one MIT. I don't think it's perfectly fine to have fourteen MITs. I think having schools which value things beyond just sheer academic cleverness and they value you know a very diverse range of skills in their student body is obviously a good thing yeah i mean just because something isn't fair and could never be completely fair doesn't mean you just throw up your hands and say it's fine the way it is you you find other ways to handle it so if if harvard has too many rich legacy kids maybe you stop having a legacy program or maybe you tweak the way you do admissions to have fewer kids from you know whatever fancy private high school there is or you know and maybe at the same time if you take a look holistically at the university system in the United States, you figure out ways to make public education better. You create more seats at the best public schools. You you could create more seats at Harvard, at Yale. There's Why do they have to admit so few people? Why don't they take their billions of dollars and expand admissions? You know, there's all kinds of things you could do. Um, expanding expanding the number of um, undergraduate places at these institutions is is definitely something they could do. They don't want to do it because it would damage their standing in various league tables, and they like being elite. And but ultimately, these institutions are always going to represent a tiny minority of college attendance in the country, right? So, mm-hmm. you know. You can expand it from 1% to 2%, but it's still only going to be 2%. My feeling is that what we really need to do is have an honest conversation about the finances here. You know, that so much of legacy admissions is really just a way of trying to attract multi-generational wealth into the alumni who give regular donations to the college. Um, and you can see why they would want to do that. And so... and and. U.S. education is really centered on financial concerns way more than tertiary education anywhere else that I know of. And it skews everything for better or worse. Um, You know, I have this weird idea that what they should really do is just set tuition at a million dollars a year and then give everyone financial aid. Um, but if you're a member of the 1%, you're going to get much less financial aid than if you're a member of like the 5%. Why? What? Why? It's already so, expensive and the 1% can afford and everyone else can't afford it. Right. That's the whole point, it, right? But what would raising it to a million, what, 
What, like, why? It, like, because at that point, you actually get a bunch of the money up front. Right now, ah. the, um, the calculation, the reason why they really want the 1% is because they expect that 1% to give them a huge amount of money in donations in the future. And increasing the tuition rate would, would bring that forward into the present and thereby make it less important for them to admit legacies for the sake of future donations. I think that would be weird for the students. It would basically <laughs> convert it would basically convert donations into tuition. Right. But then the students you'd be like, well your parents just paid a million dollars to get you in here and I actually had to work to get in here. It's well, I like, mean you would have to you have to pair a lot it, of issues. <laughs> you would have to pair it with with needs blind admission, right? But they have that already in most of these schools. Well, need blind admissions are actually, you know, one of the things that have been criticized because when you're looking at an application, if you can't see income level on the application, you may have two applicants who look roughly the same, but one has, you know, a lot more extracurriculars and so on. And it may be because they went to a private school and, you know, didn't have to have an after school job and things like that. So unless some of those things come out, for instance, in, in a personal essay or a recommendation, you're still privileging the the wealthier student whether you realize it or not just because right right i i don't think i don't think there's a way to avoid privileging wealthy students well there is you you could you could diversify by socioeconomic status and that would actually solve a lot of your other diversity problems too but schools don't want to do that because they fundamentally want more wealthy students they're they're happy with that situation so, so you're saying you, you you put like a quota in basically and saying we can't have more than one percent of our students coming from the top one percent yeah pretty much uh I, I don't think that they would band it that tightly but you know but to the point like in terms of this report like that's the thing that's the thing whether you get to see the really big discrepancies right is is it that sort of very tight band like it's comparing the top one percent to like the following ten percent of the income distribution in the country you know it is still the case that most americans in the bottom 50 percent of the income um distribution in america do not go to college at all and it's not you know most of them don't even apply that's that's a socioeconomic problem and it's a culture problem um you know if, if you're somebody whose parents didn't go to college grandparents didn't go to college and you're working class you may not even understand how to navigate the systems that you need to navigate in order to apply, even to you know a school that's close to you. Um, so that's a problem that I think these elite colleges are kind of bad at solving, even when they go out and try to recruit people from low-income communities. No, it's it's a systemic problem, and I don't think it's something that like Harvard can swoop in and solve. I, I disagree. I mean, the researchers here, Raj Chetty and Opportunity Insights, the gang. They looked at public university admissions, and public university admissions didn't have this discrepancy. There was no like edge for the ultra ultra wealthy. It's clear that these elite schools have a preference for them, and maybe they should talk to the public universities. And and conversely, it's clear that the one percent have a preference for the elite schools. Yeah, but maybe the elite universities should talk to the public universities and be like, "How do you do it?" Because they're these are great schools, top schools. You know, the Berkeley is the University of Michigan's. They don't have this edge or they don't have this bias. Clearly, there's a way to do admissions and not have the bias. Yeah, and these are the, the best schools in the country, smart enough to figure something out. Yeah, also the top 1% kids were overrepresented, even when you controlled for the fact that they're more likely to apply. 
That was the mic drop. That, that was the mic drop. Okay, we will <laughs> we will um, we will end it there. In that case, we'll have a numbers round. Um, Emily, do you have a number? Yes, five hundred and twenty-eight point six million dollars. That is total global box office as of Thursday for the Barbie movie. It's a smash hit. It's blowing away Oppenheimer. It's not even close. <laughs> Barbie is killing it. It is a monster success. I Have you seen it? We needed to acknowledge. Yes. And? I saw it. it. It's a great movie. It's so fun. There, there's musical numbers. Ryan Gosling, amazing as Ken. He has a great song that I can't get out of my head about it's being a musical? just Ken. Oh, my God. You no, I'm definitely going. Well, I'm going on Wednesday with, <gasps> uh, with you know, friend of the pod, Shane Farrow. Oh, wonderful. It is so good. And yeah, there's a bunch of musical numbers. It's just delightful. And I love it. And it has a nice, you know, tidy feminist message. And I'm I'm glad a, a movie with a feminist message um, has mass appeal. I like that. Have you seen it? Yeah, seen I it? saw I saw both last weekend. Oh. I did the double wow. header. Wait, in, in, in one day? Yep. You did the Barbenheimer? I did. I wrote about it for the Times, and I felt like I would be extremely hypocritical if I didn't actually go through with it. <laughs> nice. And, and, and did you did you uh, follow the advice of the Union of Concerned Scientists or whoever they were who said you need to do Oppenheimer first and then take a two-hour break and then do Barbie? Uh, yeah, we sort of did by default because there was an hour and a half between the two movies, and we saw them at the same theater. So we ran and got dinner and then ran back. They <laughs> did Oppenheimer first, which I'm glad because... I think if you did it in the, the reverse order, Oppenheimer was fantastic, but it's it's very long and parts of it are very slow. And I think we would have left the theater at like midnight if we'd done that. I'm feeling sad? Probably. Yeah. You don't leave the Barbie movie feeling sad. <laughs> no, feel no. Awesome. Well done, Greta Gerwig and the crew. Um, Elizabeth, what's your number? Uh, my number is 13, and that's degrees. And it turns out Midtown Manhattan is 13 degrees higher in temperature this week than the average of Manhattan because there's something called the uh, urban heat effect. And it basically says oh. that in areas where you have high density and a lot of concrete, the concrete absorbs more heat and then re-emits it. Oh. Um, so I find walking around Midtown in the summer miserable anyway, but if it feels a little bit more miserable than usual, that's that's part of the reason. This is also the reason why apartments on Central Park are so expensive. Why? Because that is the big green like lung, basically, in the middle of um. Manhattan, that if you walk into it, it is much cooler than if you go down to Times Square and you're in like the, the heart of Midtown with, without any greenery. They should just mow Midtown down, put up a park. We're all working from home anyway. What, right? One of the most effective. <laughs> that, that 13 <laughs> degrees, by the way, is roughly the amount by which temperatures fall if you just put up a tree on the sidewalk. Oh, my God. Um, it's, you know, useful at the margin. Uh, my number is eight, which is the number of hours that the CEO of NatWest, Alison Rose, managed to remain CEO of NatWest after the board of NatWest put out a press release saying that the board retains full confidence in her, that she was an outstanding leader, and that, quote, it, it is clearly in the interest of all 
the bank's shareholders and customers that she continues in her position. Uh, what? What happened? <laughs> It's like, not a good sign that they had to put that statement out, first they, of all. They put the statement out because, uh, you know, noisy, terrible UK politician by the name of Nigel Farage got upset that um, Coots, which is a bank within the NetWest group, had closed his account. And this became a big scandal. And they started looking into it. And the board decided it was going to support the CEO. Um, and then... The Prime Minister and the Finance Minister, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, saw this statement that came out at like 5.30 in the afternoon, and they decided they were not happy with it, so they call in the board and say, uh, really? Really? And they are the largest shareholder of NatWest still, because it was nationalized in the financial crisis. Um, and so, yeah, eight hours later at 1.30 in the morning, she resigned. Wait. Because Nigel's bank account was closed, the yeah. CEO of a bank lost her job? Yeah. That's the only reason. That's that's the reason she was deemed incompetent because his bank account was closed? Didn't we just yeah. talk last week about banks closing bank accounts and it's totally, I mean, it's unfortunate, but it's fine. Like It happens to? all the time. And banks can close bank accounts for any or no reason. But yeah, what happened was that he found out the reason. What is it? So there are two competing reasons, but they kind of work in concert with each other. The big real reason, I think we can all agree at this point, is that the folks at Coots were like, you are an unpleasant racist and we don't want to bank you. Fair. Um, and he's like, I'm allowed to be an unpleasant racist. Why can't you have unpleasant racists as, as, as you know, customers? Um, and Coots, instead of just saying, well... It's up to us. We can, you know, refuse anyone's service for any or no reason. Um, I actually came out and said, and the source of this was the CEO. I actually came out and said, well, no, you know, technically there's a commercial reason why we why we closed the account. It wasn't just because he's an unpleasant racist. You know, it's because he didn't, you know, meet the criteria for being a Coots client. Coots is a very high-end bank and you need you know, three million pounds in the bank or a million pounds of loans or something. Um, and this was also true, right? Because he'd recently um, paid off a mortgage or something. And so he didn't have his million pound mortgage anymore. Um, but the problem was that when Alison Rose mentioned that there was a commercial reason for closing his account to a BBC journalist, she was in so doing basically revealing something about Nigel Farage's finances to that journalist. And that violated client confidentiality. And so she had to resign in the eyes of the Tory party. Like, you know, the whole thing is a really dumb story. It really is. I'm glad you explained it because I was sort of like low key ignoring it all week, but feeling like I should understand <laughs> it. But I don't know if listeners felt the same way. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, like, the first rule of any news coming out of the UK is that it's really dumb. Like, <laughs> I, all of these stories are just spectacularly dumb. And he's the king of the dumb stories. I mean, isn't he a big Brexit pusher? Yeah, yeah. He was he was pushing Brexit, you know, long before it was cool. And long after it was not cool. Exactly. You know, he's still pushing Brexit. I'm, I'm sure he's still out there saying that, you know, Brexit isn't Brexity enough. But yeah, I think that's 
all we have time for this week. Thanks so much for listening to Slate Money. Thanks so much to Patrick and Merritt and the whole Slate crew for putting this thing together. Um, keep the emails coming, slatemoney at slate.com. Let me know what I should do with my pile of Amex points. And we're going to have a Slate Plus segment on Joe Lewis, another really dumb story coming out of the UK. There's no <laughs> end of such things. So we're going to talk about Joe Lewis, who's the owner of Tottenham Hotspur and his insider trading allegations. Well, that's coming up on Slate Plus. Otherwise, see you next week on Slate Money. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.